Hello, greetings, thanks for your interest in spiritual matters. My name's Ethan and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples on the west side of Los Angeles. From the beginning of the New Testament until its end, civil government stands behind the scene and its influence is hard to escape. In Matthew chapter 2, we see that Herod the Great perceived Jesus to be a threat to his reign and the fact that Jesus was raised in Nazareth partly because Archelaus was ruler in Judea. In Luke 3 and verse 1, Luke dates the beginning of John's ministry according to the years of the rulers in Judea and Galilee. In Acts 4, 23-28, the apostles understood the death of Jesus as having come at the hands of Pilate and Herod, fulfilling Psalm 2, 1-6. In Revelation chapter 13 through 19, the beast, the false prophet, and the whore Babylon are the embodiment of the Roman power in the emperor, Roman religion in the emperor cult, and Rome itself. And they are persecuting the holy ones and corrupting and deceiving the people. Therefore, ever since, the people of God have maintained a fraught and often deeply compromised relationship with civil government. For around the first 300 years of Christianity, the civil government was an oppressive persecuting power. For most of the 1700 years since, civil government in the West, at least, has often convinced itself it is the champion of Christianity and quote-unquote Christendom, and it's often tried to baptize itself in various forms to justify its violence and standing in the name of Jesus. People have justified the divine right of kings, as if, since God installed a king, whatever the king decreed was the will of God, and believed it was taught in the New Testament. People have justified overthrowing kings and any ruler who would act contrary in way, sorry, act in ways contrary to what is deemed right and just from what they see in the pages of the New Testament. Views on the relationship between the Christian, the church, and civil government, therefore, have varied considerably throughout the ages, and unfortunately, but understandably, un proves more culturally informed than grounded in what God has made known in Christ. That's why we do well to explore civil government and the Christian's relationship to civil government from the pages of Scripture, and also do so in light of the history of interpretation, and to try to find a way forward which glorifies God. To look at the passages of Scripture that address civil government, and how they were understood in their context, what their relationship has been between Christians and civil government ever since, and how they were justified, and how today we as Christians can relate to civil government in ways that glorify God according to what he has declared in Christ. As we said, uh, we get a hint of matters of government from the very beginning. In Matthew chapter 2, the way that Matthew frames the whole story, uh, kind of frame everything about what's going to happen to Jesus. Because from the return of from exile in the days of the Persian Empire until Antiochus IV, of the Seleucids, the land of Israel was ruled over by pagan overlords that were at least mildly tolerant, at best, excuse me, and at worst actively seeking to eliminate the distinctiveness of Israel as a people of God, having banned the observance of the law of Moses and tried to impose Greek ways of life. For a brief period of time there, from about 167 to 63, before Jesus, Israel was liberated from pagan oppressive rule by the Maccabees and the Hasmonean dynasty. Unfortunately, the Hasmonean dynasty kind of became what it had replaced in many respects. And there was a conflict between brothers, and one brought in the Romans. And in 63, Pompey entered Jerusalem in triumph and walked right into the most holy place. Herod's father Antipater and Herod himself, who were Edomites, Idumeans, 
and they became very well placed in this late Hasmonean administration, and they took on power for themselves. Herod would attempt to legitimate his rule by marrying Mariamne of the line of the Hasmoneans. The Jewish people, though, considered Herod a puppet of the Romans, and in him saw a new kind of oppressor, uh, half-pagan, half-Jewish. The rule of the Romans from 63 BC to the year 70 after Jesus was never entirely peaceful. The population was always restive, easily inside a riot or rebellion. Rome had come to bring peace through security, and Herod embodied that spirit as he approached his rule and any threats to it, famously having killed his wife, killed many of his sons, and when he heard what the wise men said about this king coming to Bethlehem, had no problem sending his soldiers to kill all the children of Bethlehem under the age of two. And why it was wise for the angel to tell uh, Joseph, since Archelaus was ruling in, his son was ruling in Judea, that he should live instead in Galilee, and that is where he was raised. In, when Jesus uh, grew to maturity and was teaching and ministering, we see an important instance of this relationship in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. That the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So Herod Antipas is the son of Herod the Great, ruling in Galilee, and the Herodians would be fans of his. And Judea was being ruled by a series of Roman, govern Roman governors called procurators. And so there's this question they use to try to bind Jesus. Should they pay taxes to Caesar or not? And here's the bind. If he says that taxes are to be paid, that he would be seen by the people as an apologist for the oppressive pagan regime. But if he says taxes should not be paid, they could accuse him of fomenting rebellion against Roman rule. But Jesus asked them why they put him to the test. You hypocrites, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Now the Daenerys would have featured an image of Tiberius Caesar, and surrounded by his claims, son of the glorified Augustus. So he asked them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And of course they marvel and go away. It's often interpreted here as setting up a boundary between church and state. But that's really a later projection onto the text. To the Jewish people, that denarius was unwelcome idolatry, since it had not only the graven image of Tiberius, but also his blasphemous claims to being the son of the glorified Augustus. And so Jesus is being a bit politically subversive. Give back to Caesar his polluted, idolatrous money. But that which is God's, i.e. all of you, all of who you are, should be dedicated to God instead. Soon after, in the time of Jesus' life, Jesus will be brought before... Pontius Pilate, the, the procurator of Rome at that, uh, the procurator uh, of Judea at that time, from the Romans. In verse 33 of chapter 18 of John, uh, Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus asked him, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say to this to you about me? And Pilate asked, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So Jesus is given over to Pilate. Jesus never denies Pilate's authority, but he understands in verses 10 and 11 of chapter 19 that you have no authority over me unless it all had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has a greater sin. He understands the forces involved. But Pilate just is concerned 
what are you? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you somebody who's a political threat uh, to Caesar's rule that I need to deal with? Jesus doesn't deny his kingship or his kingdom. But he says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, that, so you are a king. Jesus said, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? But after he had said this, Pilate went back outside of the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. So Pilate found the line of logic compelling. He saw that Jesus wasn't a real threat to the rule of Tiberius over Judea, and so he was going to release him. And this is the important thing. Jesus established here that the kingdom is not from this world. From here, probably a better translation of, uh, than of. It certainly has something to do with this world, as we are going to see. But it is not a kingdom like the rest of the kingdoms of the world. His kingdom was not going to be advanced by fighting earthly conflicts. In Acts chapter 4, uh, Peter and John, the apostles, were summoned before the Sanhedrin. They endured the threats, and they reported in the first 23 verses all the things that had happened to them. And then, in verse 24, when all the apostles had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Quoting from Psalm 2. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they're praying to God and they're praying the substance of Psalm 2 and then they interpret it. They apply it to what happened to Jesus. That the Jews and the Gentiles, Herod and Pilate, had conspired against the Messiah of God and had done what God had predestined to do with them. The apostles were aware they were going to experience this oppression and persecution from the same power that condemned their Lord. And this is why they sought boldness and strength from God to continue proclaiming the gospel despite it and in the face of it, which is a very powerful witness to what the apostles understand Jesus is up to. The apostles would not deny the spiritual forces that work behind Jesus' death. But they understood that the political forces who would be inspired by those spiritual forces were complicit and active in the death of the Messiah. And in fact, in the very next chapter, in verse 17 through 42, they would all be hauled up before the Sanhedrin. They would all get beaten by them, but they would all rejoice because they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Jesus. Now in Acts 16, 17, and 18, we see the times Paul has interactions with the authorities of civil government during his time in Greece. In chapter 16, uh, in verse 16 through 40, there was a, a slave girl with a demon that was going around and knowing Paul, calling out that he was a servant of the Most High God. And so Paul just irritatedly just cast the demon out of her. And this was problematic because her owners had made money on her because she could tell, you know, fortune telling thing of that nature and so they um, seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace for the rulers and said these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept their practice the crowd joined in and so they were beaten with rods by the magistrates 
the officials of the magistrates and put into prison. There's this, you know, the jailer, of course, we, we know would convert because he sees the faithful witness of Paul and Silas who had been singing and praying and then the earthquake and they were all there. Uh, but after that, Paul, you know, is being said he could be let free. But he, he really kind of uh, insists on something here in verse uh, 36. When it's been told the jailer to say, hey, you've been, been magistrate sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. And Paul says, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. And so the police told the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens, since they were beaten with it before finding this out. Roman citizens were not to be beaten in this way. And they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. Which they did. We can wonder why Paul insisted on these things. Uh, Paul probably does this to give some cover to the church in Philippi as he departs, that uh, the, the Christians may not suffer the wrath of the magistrates because Paul could send a report and get them in trouble for what they did to him. In Acts 17, 5 through 9, Paul and Silas moved on to Thessalonica. The Jews in Thessalonica stirred up the crowds, and uh, but they so they dragged out um, Jason and some of the other Christians before the city authorities and shouted in verse six: "These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." Which is a powerful testimony and and something that the Romans would certainly find subversive. This disturbed and troubled the rulers, but when uh, Jason and the rest had given them some money, they let him go. And, and Paul and Silas continue on their way. In chapter 18, after being in Corinth for some time, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before Gallio, uh, the proconsul, who was uh, the brother of uh, Seneca, the famous philosopher, a Stoic philosopher. And the Jews brought him before the tribunal and declaring, This man is persuading the people to worship God contrary to the law. And Paul was about to open his mouth, but Gallio said, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of such things. Now you might think, wow, Gallio's being very high-minded here. He's being somebody who is understanding his role. No, no. Unfortunately, we can see that uh, the Jews see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. Gallio paid no attention to it. He didn't want to be bothered. He just didn't care. He let the Jews do as they pleased. Now in Acts 21 through 28, the end of the book of Acts really demonstrates how Paul leverages his Roman citizenship for personal protection and how he advances the gospel. So in Acts 21, 27 through 36, is when he's in the temple and he gets arrested. And you might think that, okay. But the arresting saves his life. The Jews would have beat him to death if it hadn't been for the Romans coming in and dragging him into jail and putting him in a relatively secure location. In Acts 22, 23-29, he appeals to his citizenship to be uh, avoid being examined by scourging. This gives him an opportunity to also speak before the Sanhedrin since the Romans are trying to figure out what on earth is going on. In verses 10 and 11 of chapter 23, after the Sanhedrin is left in tumult with what Paul had said, he is brought back into the fortress for his safety. Uh, later in the chapter, 12 through 35, uh, we can imagine at great expense and with great fanfare, Paul is given a military escort from Jerusalem to Caesarea because a plot for his life has been established and has been made known. 
And so 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen uh, in the middle of the night were what was brought. That's a pretty big force. Uh, definitely a big, powerful show of force to show that the Romans were not going to let him die. And in the letter uh, that we have um, from Claudius Lysias, who's the uh, uh, the tribunal here, uh, being sent to the governor Felix, he kind of massages the, the truth a little bit, uh, but uh, demonstrates a desire to maintain justice, trying to figure out what on earth this is going on here and that it should be judged fairly. In chapter 24, we see uh, Paul before Felix. Felix knows something about Christianity, but he's vacillating. He's more interested in bribery than justice, and he's not willing to do the right thing, so it would anger the Jewish people. In fact, as a gift to the Jewish people, he leaves Paul in prison when uh, his successor, Festus, comes to rule. And Festus is more fair-minded. He wants to understand the point at issue, uh, and he brings in King Herod Agrippa I to hear it. And so Paul... Uh, is able to preach for both of them. And in fact, they both recognize that Paul is innocent. And in fact, it says that they would have released him if he had not appealed to Caesar. Um, in Acts 27 and 28, we, we kind of see how the journey to Rome wasn't exactly the easiest journey, and that's kind of what we focus on, but we shouldn't miss in that, that Paul is receiving all-expenses-paid trip to uh, Rome uh, at the expense of the Roman military or the, or the Roman administration. Uh, yes, the, it doesn't end well, but uh, it is uh, still something that's going on because he's appealed to Caesar uh, because something he can do as a citizen. And uh, he used that leverage of his citizenship to be able to speak, and now he's spoken to two governors of Judea. He's spoken to the king. Uh, over the, the Jews and, and people in Galilee, and he will speak before Caesar himself because of that uh, opportunity. Uh, and, and so he was very smart in how he leveraged that citizenship. It's also worth mentioning that centurions, who are the middle-level authorities in the Roman Empire, in an army, they're always portrayed positively in the New Testament. Their model of faith in Matthew 8, uh, that he attests to Jesus, Son of God, in Matthew 27, 54. Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, is a, is a centurion in Acts chapter 10. And Acts 27 is a centurion who saves Paul from the intention of the soldiers who were going to kill him uh, after the ship had run aground. In Romans 13, the same Paul uh, provides an exhortation to Christians. In Romans 12, 19-21, he had told Christians not to take their own vengeance. But he says instead in verse 1 of chapter 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for... He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So we need to understand the context here. Paul's writing to Romans around 54 to 57. These are the early days of Nero. Not before, Nero isn't Nero yet. Uh, he's still being held in check by his uh, advisors and things. But it's still Nero. 
And here, God's Paul sees a God-appointed place for the government authorities. They're God's servants to maintain order in society. He expects Christians to remain subject to them, to pay taxes, and to give the honor due to those who are in authority. Peter will have a very similar message in 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's kind of expecting there to be problems. He expects persecution. And so he continues in verse 13, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. He would continue to hold up Jesus as a model for Christians who suffered unjustly, was reviled, and killed, yet still entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And in this way was able to provide salvation for all of us. Now most agree that Peter is writing a little bit later than Paul did in Romans, probably in the early 60s. And so by this point Nero is absolutely Nero. And uh, is cruel and ruthless and full of sin. And Peter's writing from Rome. First Peter 5.18, Babylon is most likely a cipher for Rome. So right in the same city as the emperor, Paul still says, Peter still says to honor him, respect him, be subject to his authority. And Peter's extradition really confirms what Paul has already said, because they have no right to expect anything from the pagans in a positive way, but Christians are still to be subject to the laws of the authorities. They should honor the king, even if the king is less than honorable in his conduct. Now, Revelation uh, 13 through 19, John is given a vision of a great power that Satan uses to persecute and overcome the people of God, a beast, the false prophet, and the whore Babylon. In Revelation 13, 1 through 10, the beast is given power to overcome the world, and then to make war on the saints and overcome them. The second beast, the false prophet, exhorts people toward worshiping the first beast and has dark power to do miraculous signs to get people to worship the beast. Whore Babylon is described in fraudulent decadence, having made drunk all the kings of the earth with the wine of her sexual morality, with whom they, they are enmeshed economically and spiritually in Revelation 17. Now, all of these embody aspects of the Roman Empire. The beast as its power, which is embodied in the emperor. The false prophet, the religion of worshipping the emperor's genius. And the whore Babylon is the city of Rome itself, its political and economic powerhouse. And so John is seeing Rome as decadent, empowered by forces of evil, a raging oppressor and persecutor of the people of God, and one on whom the unmixed wine of the wrath of God will be poured out, their prosperity lost and left friendless in chapter 18 through chapter 19. This is not a positive picture of the civil government under which John lived. Now, our first impulse is to try to make some sense of all of this. But before we do that, we need to give thought to how uh, the relationship between Christian and civil government has played out between this time of the first century and now. Uh, because that's going to shape how we understand these texts. Now, for the first 250 years after this, from 100 about 350, uh, the time of Constantine, especially his descendants, official Roman policy was very hostile toward Christianity. Those who were found to profess Christianity were to be examined, and if they did not waver in their faith, they were to be killed. 
The question was whether Christians should be sought out or just the charges handled when they were brought. The point of hostility was exactly what John talked about, that the Roman authority demanded honoring of the emperor and his genius among the ancestral gods. Christians were actually as atheists because they denied all the gods of the nations and represented a very powerful challenge to the status quo. And so whenever anything got really bad, uh, and it got really bad from about 180 to 250, it was easy to blame Christians because they all said, hey, the gods are angry because uh, these Christians have been impious and not giving them the honor due them and and therefore we need to do something about this. What's interesting is that early Christians were willing to suffer and experience martyrdom. They submitted to the penalties Rome established for them. But many of them wrote apologies or appeals for Christians to attest to their high morals and ethics and the fact they're very productive citizens of the empire. Uh, but all this was written for naught. But as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is seed. People heard about the faith of Christians. They saw their willingness to suffer humiliation, torture, even death for their faith. They saw that in the lives that they lived, they cared for, for each other and for everyone. And because of that, the church grew like wildfire throughout the empire, even though official policy was not helping them whatsoever. They paid taxes in honor and respect to the authorities, as had been commanded, but they understood that participating in the Roman government would mean active collaboration with those who persecuted God's people. Now, 350, a profound change took place in the faith because Constantine and his family took over the mantle of Christianity. And in various ways, most of Christendom now became allied with political power and worked to justify it. And all of this took a certain form until around 1600. In the West, it was very much shaped by Augustine's City of God. That he posited there were two realms, the City of God and the City of Men. And yeah, sure, each had its jurisdiction, but the City of God had a higher calling and was superior. Augustine also famously came with the idea of just war, the times when it is right and necessary to fight wars of defense to protect uh, you and your people. In the East, the emperor would become so enmeshed with the church that it led to the excess of what's called Caesaropapism because the emperor himself was over the church, and he would often direct the affairs of the church. Many in the church resented that kind of intervention, and, and uh, they would critique some official policy, but most seemed to understand that the welfare of the Orthodox Church was going to uh, wax and wane with the uh, welfare of the Byzantine Empire. And even to this day, orthodoxy is hard to disentangle from its nation-states under which it is held, and the power bases in those nation-states. In the West, the Roman Catholic authorities would wield spiritual and then political power. And a lot of popes put forth a lot of effort to obtain even more political power. And the great medieval showdown involved the power kings had to appoint bishops and so on in the churches in their realm. The Roman Catholic Church would wield significant political and economic power over the West. Inquisitions and crusades were raised at its behest, leading to war and persecution in the name of Jesus. Many northern countries suffered the loss of so much wealth that was being brought to Rome uh, in the form of indulgences and other gifts that uh, one of the major catalysts for the Reformation was you know, the appeal of having the money stay locally as opposed to all going to Rome. Now this time, most in Christendom understood physical dominions to be Christian dominions, that their kings were Christians, the machinery of the state was designed in some way to be Christian, and really that influence has never gone away. But from since 1600, we've seen uh, a lot of actions and reactions, because the Reformation really required a reassessment of the relationship between church and state, and led to radically different answers. 
John Calvin was one extreme attempting to build a theocracy in Geneva. The Puritans of America would try their own hand at being a, building a theocracy a century later. And the other extreme were the Anabaptists, who generally preached pacifism and wanted nothing to do with the state, and often suffered persecution at the hands of everyone. So one thing that the Catholics, the Lutherans, and the Calvinists could all agree on was that you really needed to do something about those Anabaptists. In England, in the 17th century, those who favored the king advanced the divine right of king's theology, that God had installed the king, and therefore whatever the king decreed was the will of God, and the people should obey it, and be glad there's a strong ruler to maintain order and to keep chaos at bay. Now, hey, that played right into the absolutism of the monarchs of the era. And soon after, we saw the age of the Enlightenment, and it was a reaction against that absolutism. And so in the American Revolution, we see the opposite argument defended in Romans chapter 13, the very same passage uh, that was used to defend the divine right of kings 150 years earlier was now being used to say, hey, uh, authorities reward good and punish evil. If a tyrant arises who punishes good and rewards evil, it's a Christian's duty, in fact, to depose him and install another ruler who will do the right. So it's not even just... Uh, don't do anything. It's to you have to actively uh, get rid of such tyranny. After hundreds of years of war, Europe was finally pacified with the idea of state religion, that each area would follow the religious views of its monarch, and the state would support that version of Christianity, and that would become the earliest model in America as well. But America saw the abuses of that state church system and worked to disestablish it. And interestingly, even as we have all these different culture war arguments about the role of faith in public life, everybody seems to agree that America is better off without establishing a state denomination, that there's not a state church. However, Christendom in America has tried to figure out a way to maintain its presence and grow and flourish. Um, and the state has been more than happy, by the way, to have many of its members baptize it in the cross, presume it a Christian nation, and think that everything it does is blessed by God. And, in fact, we can find within Christendom almost every imaginable posture towards civil government, as we've been able to see. As blessed by God and favored by God, as consistent with God's purposes in Christ, as uneasy with the state, trying to keep it at arm's length, or, in fact, actively hostile to the state, questioning its legitimacy, and even justifying rebellion against it. And this is the heritage that we've been given. That when we read the New Testament, it's through looking at these, this prism of all that's come before us, and we're subtly concerned that we're going to be too much like one or against another, and so on and so forth. So we just have to be honest with all of that that's gone on. And now we can now see, okay, we've looked at the text in the New Testament, we've looked at this historical relationship between Christians and the civil government, and I hope that we can see that there's one fundamental issue at hand, and that's this tension. And it's a difficulty that's led to all others. In Romans 13, the government is God's minister that wields the sword God has given it. In Revelation 13, the government is Satan's minister using the power Satan has given it. And throughout time, it's been easiest to consider civil government as one or the other, as serving God or serving Satan, intrinsically good or intrinsically bad. But we must discern, this is the important thing here, that civil government both and simultaneously serves God and Satan. That just seems like it's an impossibility, but that's exactly this condition of Rome. It's the same Rome that Paul and Peter say you're supposed to obey, that John says is the uh, satanically driven whore. And they're both right. God has appointed civil government for a reason. As we saw in Romans 13, it exists to maintain order and justice. 
And yet those in authority have obtained it from the evil one. They're propped up by the spiritual forces of darkness, and they work to aggrandize themselves at the expense of others. They're all there to build themselves up and tear others down. And we see this happening in Rome. We can see Paul's experience with the Roman officials and how he was able to leverage his Roman citizenship for protection to advance the gospel, something that would be impossible if Rome had no interest whatsoever in justice. But Rome is also this new Babylon, uh, bringing peace through security, thinking nothing of slaughtering anybody who challenges their authority or who were threats to the way that things were working for them. And so, as with the world, so a civil government. Christians live under them and in them, but Christians are not to be of them. Yes, the Christian has responsibilities towards civil government. As we've seen in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, they're to follow the laws of the civil governing authorities. Even if, according to Acts 5.29, they need to do a moment of act, obeying God rather than man, they must be willing to suffer the civil government's penalty for doing so and demonstrate that they are still subject to those authorities uh, in suffering that consequence. At no point do we have any suggestion that a Christian is justified in rising up in a rebellion against the civil government under which they live. And uh, it's very important also to notice something about Paul and Peter's words in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. They mention authorities, not laws. We cannot imagine that we're serving documents and not actual people as rulers. And we have no justification to rebel because we think that the authority is not honoring the presumed justifications that they're using under a document. Rome had documents too, but Paul and Peter say you honor the emperor and you serve the magistrates and do what they say. Uh, that's the way it must be for us as well. Christians are to pay taxes whom taxes are due. Romans 13, 4-7. There's no justification for not doing so. Yeah, sure, that money is going to be used probably for things that we don't agree with. Uh, it's going to be used to build up military that might be used to kill people. It might be used as weapons against us at some point. Uh, same happened with the Romans. When the Paul and others paid taxes, they were paying to the state that was going to persecute and kill them. But they still said it was right and necessary for them to pay taxes. Christians are free in Christ in 1 Peter 2, but that's not a pretext for evil. Christians are not justified in flaunting civil authority because they serve Jesus. And in fact, we demonstrate our service of Jesus when we... Um, honor and respect the civil authority no matter how respectable or honorable they prove to be. And that's another important point. The honor, honoring the emperor is not something that is only because the emperor is doing certain right things. Uh, Peter says honor the emperor when it's Nero at his worst. So we have to honor the emperor. Honor the king, even if we don't like him. That's the way it goes. Paul used his citizenship as a Roman to advance the purposes of God and Christ. We can, in fact, should do the same. In 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, we're to pray for those who are in authority. Where we have an opportunity to speak a word of Christ to those in authority, we ought to do so, just as Paul did before Felix, Festus, Agrippa, and Christ Caesar himself. And yet, we must be concerned that we do not become part of the machinery of civil government to be co-opted for its purposes. As Jesus said, his kingdom is not from this world. If Jesus himself did not set up an earthly government, we have no reason to believe that we, his followers, should be trying to set up an earthly government and should not consider any particular government as a quote-unquote Christian government. And it's in Christ that God has reconciled everyone who would trust in him into one body. In Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, nation-states, by their very nature, are tribal to some degree, and they are going to experience times of hostility against other nation-states. 
And Christians cannot love their fellow people of God and those who might be hostile to them while hating the enemies of their particular nation-state. They cannot do the good God would have them do to everybody and inflict violence upon those of other nation-states in the name of their nation-state. This idea of Matthew 5, 38-48. In Romans 12 and Romans 13, there's an interesting contrast. In Romans 12, Paul has been encouraging us as Christians. This is what you should be doing as Christians. Then in Romans 13, whatever... He's talking to Christians. It's about how they're to be subject to them. Like those in authority are them. There's a distinction between the vengeance that the nation-state enacts uh, and Christians who are to give space to God and to the nation-state. Civil government may exist by God's power, but it's always under the cloud of the evil one. And so participation in the civil government will likely get messy because it is compromised by nature, because it's trying to serve God and Satan at the same time. Now, hey, Erastus in Corinth, we find as a city treasurer, uh, an edile. We've actually found an inscription that's probably about him. Uh, Paul talks about this in Romans 16.23. So yeah, there are ways Christians can find to faithfully serve their city and their local area. But as greater earthly authority is sought, there's a greater temptation of enslavement by the powers and principalities. And we need to be careful about that. So yes, God has his purposes that he accomplishes through civil government, even though civil government is compromised by its association with the powers and principalities over this present darkness. And so as Christians, we do well to submit to civil government, to pray, and to advocate for righteousness and justice, but understand that our hope is in Christ and the purposes of the transnational, transcendent kingdom of God in Christ, and that it's the gospel, which is the way of redemption of mankind. And therefore, we need to trust in God in Christ and obtain the resurrection of life in Him and to realize that our standing before God comes because we are in Christ and serve Him and not because we are Americans. We hope that you've been benefited by this, and if so, we encourage you to please share it on social media. Uh, if you have any questions about anything that we've talked about, if you'd like to talk about it further, if you have a prayer request, if you just want to learn more about us, please find us online at VenturechurchofChrist.org. We're also on social media. If I can be of any service, please reach out to me at my website at DeVerboVitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. I again thank you. Have a great day.